you are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Udo Schliemann is a designer and principal creative director at Antro. He's also an accomplished artist and all-around creative. He was born and raised in Germany and spent half of his career there, notably being mentored by Anton Stankowski before moving to Canada and landing at Antro. Udo is my first repeat guest on this podcast. The last time he was on, we discussed evidence-driven design and the importance of creativity. Today, we're talking about the role of graphic design in placemaking with a focus on the Olympics as a way to build community. So thank you very much, Udo, for being on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you back. Thank you for having me. So can you start by telling us what is placemaking? Well, placemaking, some say placekeeping, um, is, is both it's an overarching idea and it's also a hands-on approach for improving a neighborhood, but it can also extend to a city, even a region. This could be a temporary placemaking event like the Olympics or permanent improvements. And placemaking, you know, inspires people to collectively, and that's the important part, collectively reimagine and reinvent public spaces as the heart of every community. So it's not a top-down approach. It's an approach with the people who live there. And strengthening the connection between people and the places they share. So placemaking refers to a collaborative process by which we can shape our public realm in order to maximize the shared value. More than just promoting better urban design, placemaking facilitates creative patterns of use, paving or paying particular attention to the physical, the cultural and social identities that define a place and support its ongoing evolution. That makes sense. And you already answered my next question, which was, why is that important? I think you've covered that already. So as far as what you do professionally, what is the role of graphic design? Or maybe you can use the term environmental design, or you can tell me if there's yet a better term for that, on public spaces and building. I still want to come back a little bit to why is that important? Um, because, you know, I grew up in a small village. In a small village, you don't need placemaking. Mm -hmm. The pace of growth is slow and organic. In a village, the people take part in the political life, in the dealings and doings, festivities and games, work and leisure. They are mm -hmm. all part of it. But that all changes when the organization becomes bigger. So instead of activities, there are now institutions who handle these activities. Instead of artisanry, there is uh, bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. New professions like lawyers, officials, and ministers. 
And that alters the whole culture, the whole style of human existence. So in place of concretely discernible comes the systematic abstraction. The particular is replaced by the universal. And self-administration is replaced by decree, and intuition and experience are replaced by science or pseudoscience. Think of Jane Jacobs, beware of the expert. Mm -hmm. Decisions, you know, um, once taken by individuals are now in the hands of management and superimposed central bodies, for example, city planners. Mm -hmm. So I just want to bring this into perspective because placemaking is really from the bottom up, not top down. It's not decreed from, from, a, from an institution. It's really working with the people on the ground to find the right solutions because they know better what is necessary uh, where they live. But now to your, to your actual question. I'm sorry for, for bringing that uh, um, because I thought it's important. No, it's totally fine. I'm um, glad you did. So, so when we think of graphic design and our role, you know, you normally think of doing layouts for the printed materials, maybe web design or UX design, you know, like the interface on your cell phone. Um, but when you see it more holistically, you can say that designers are communicators, advertisers, if you like. Mm -hmm. And what you do and what you communicate is now a total open field. It can be anything and it can be anywhere. And that includes the environment. How do you communicate where things are in a city to strangers? For example, through signage. Mm -hmm. That people typically only notice when it's missing or when it's wrong, but it's important. The way yeah, you, how, you have a yeah. great point is that we only notice things aren't working when they're missing. Like say you don't have the proper signage because it's always the bad experiences that we notice. When the experiences are seamless, most of the time we don't notice unless we force ourselves to consciously think about it. So that's a very interesting point too. Yeah. And it also has to do with public safety, you know, and with comfort and seeing and being seen. So how do you organize these places um, that fulfills all these needs? Mm -hmm. um, for locals, it has to do with how can I make my neighborhood a place that feels like home and that has meaning to me? And the meaning aspect became really important with the pandemic and, and the climate emergency, but especially with the pandemic, because suddenly the question of meaning was in question because everything has changed. Mm -hmm. And so what is your, uh, what do you mean when you use the word meaning in relation to cities and design? How would you define that? It's a very complex situation. The scientism, our current scientific worldview has, besides a lot of marvelous interventions or inventions, um, also brought a lot of suffering to this world. And the way we build cities is based on modern, the modernist views, uh, which is a rational, scientific approach to problems of space, population, equality, traffic, etc., etc. However, the scientific ontology um, does not have the right answers to the question of meaning and purpose, especially in a pluralistic so society like ours, where there is not one culture, but many cultural identities. 
So, so what is the, the summum bonum, the highest good, the ultimate goal we can base our decision-making on, which is related to values and truths and, and meaning in life? And this has a fundamental correlation to our cognitive agencies, to our seeing, to our standing of the world, and how we relate these problems um, and can categorize them, and how I do connect to the city and the neighborhood. And this is not a cold calculation. It's not all scientific. It's a very fluent, a very dynamical process of focus, getting into focus and getting out of focus, drifting away again and coming back, paying attention. And so it gives you a salient landscape uh, that makes you feel that you are here and now and deeply connected. So that traditionally, that connectedness was the realm of religion. Mm -hmm. the, the Latin word of religio means bind together, tie together. But religion is not playing this role anymore. So we have to find other things, how we can create these relationships to narratives and to our consciousness. So it's a very complex situation in our life. And for us as graphic designers, this is highly interesting as we are trained to see. Now, now that sounds funny in a way, you know, we all see, but indeed we are trained to see what might not be obvious mm -hmm. to the general public, you know, the patterns behind things, the context, and um, looking beyond mediated images and the, the shortened, dumbed-down context of our artificial Twitter and Facebook realities. So seeing means seeing the pattern behind the obvious in a city, analyzing the structures and the human behavior in order to develop a vision, the unexpected, the moment of surprise that is so necessary in our environments. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that brings me back to a couple of things you said earlier. Once you said you grew up in a small village and those kinds of places don't need placemaking because the villagers make the place themselves. And, and you also mentioned the rise of the manager class and everything being kind of bureaucratic. Um, so it seems like, and I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it, it seems like you're saying that as the world get more, gets more complex and uh, cities get larger, the ability to create places organically is disappearing. And so how do how can people claim that back or, or try to build back um, those community building places that are so important to humans i believe because you know we're, we're tribal species and we're, we're we've evolved to uh to be part of a smaller group smallish group of humans that we recognize and associate with as opposed to everybody else that's outside of this kind of tribe so to speak and um i'm going to pick an example in particular that i think fits that bill even though it's very recent it's uh stacked market mm -hmm. it seems to me that it's one of the if not the most successful uh placemaking project in toronto in a long time without really trying to 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 forcibly make it a place people want to engage with but more by just providing like a blank canvas for people to come in and do all sorts of things from retailers to do pop-up stores to 
people having events and parties and stuff. And, and I think that's what makes it successful. Is that something you, you would agree with? I, I wholeheartedly agree with that because it, it also means that we take these decisions and, and how we create our places in our own hands. And the stack market has a little bit this feel of, you know, custom-made, homemade, you know, improvised arrangements. It's not the high art. It's not conceptual art. Um, it's, it's really very tangible art. In most cases with placemaking and murals, you see pictures that are more realistic, beautiful, colorful, uh, but not abstract. Um, or think about the fountain at Bercy Park with all these realistic dogs and cats around. You know, it's borderline kitsch. But that is what, what, you know, you don't need to work too hard with your brain. It feels comfortable. It feels related. And, and that's why it's so successful. And this idea of um, taking the, the outcome of your places, again, back in your own hands, reclaiming these conversations and real experiences That's really the next frontier, and that's why placemaking in the city is so important. I think it's most one of the most important things um, uh, right now. And through the pandemic, we all became so aware of it. Yeah, and it's the it seems that both Stacked and Birdsea Park, which are completely different design solutions to different problems, to be honest, but they both have this sense of playfulness um, in different ways. But Berksy Park, it's like kind of whimsical with those cats and dogs that, frankly, if you don't pay close attention, you'd think they're real. And then you you look a little closer and you realize they're statues. But it's kind of cool. I mean, you used to see that in more traditional architecture. They would have those, uh, the mannequin piss and whatever else, like those crazy fountains with people holding giant uh, shellfish. And, and those were kind of whimsical in their own way as well. And I think that's what's lacking because if I relate that to another uh, contemporary example, that's act, I think the opposite. And in my mind, a complete failure is the redevelopment of Nathan Phillips Square. Because I remember when the competition uh, was held, I think it was 2005, 2006. Um, it was a big deal and it was supposed to be this new public plaza that are going to bring people together. And the reality is like they didn't end up changing much. They put a garden roof on top of the council chamber. They right. put a, a bandstand in the middle and they moved the um, memorial garden. I forget what it's called, the peace garden, uh, off to the side and did a little bit of landscaping around it. But those were pretty minimal interventions. And by and large, the very morphology of the space hasn't changed all that much. And yeah. it's a huge plaza that's very sterile. Um, and if you don't put anything in it, like say you want to have an art fair, you have to bring all kinds of tents and stuff. And at that point, it becomes maybe more usable and more friendly. But by by and large on its own, it really doesn't do anything. It's actually quite actively hostile to human occupation. Because when you're in the middle of that plaza, you feel like you're naked and you're being observed by yeah. all the buildings yeah. around you. And so that would have been a huge opportunity to do something better. And not that the, to say the building City Hall is a great building. I think it's a... It's a mid-century modern icon but the plaza is not as successful maybe a bit more so in winter because you have a skating rink so it brings people together 
and it's a big space you can use when you have big gatherings. But when it's not being actively used, it's a pretty dreadful place to be. And, uh, and, and so when, when I think about that and the places we've just compared it to, it's like night and day in my mind. Yeah. I mean, um, without going too deep in this uh, topic, but uh, one, one of the uh, problems with that plaza is that it's very monochromatic. Like it's mm -hmm. just this gray, you know, flooring. If you look at the um, in Venice, that that great plaza with the with the mosaic and the pattern, you know, that alone makes you much more feel you want to go there and feels more intimate than just one vast gray area. Yeah, I mean, you need these big places for gatherings, of course, but then you have to partition it with patterning and and with with a little bit more detail, and it, it changes the whole look of it it's a mm -hmm. it's a small intervention but it could help so much yeah and that's the one thing they didn't do when they did that uh revamping of the plaza so it's not to knock on anyone who participated in that in that design but i i truly think it was a missed opportunity so um do you have any other examples you want to talk about of um places that are meaningful and 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 fruitful in like enabling humans to thrive Well, we, um, you know, in our profession, we deal a lot with environmental uh, design, mostly regarding signage. But we did other projects like uh, Western Common. Western Common was basically, um, you know, on Lawrence Street and, and the old Western Road um, was basically an abandoned uh, parking garage uh, surrounded by 60s high-rise buildings. And Artscape uh, came in uh, together with a developer and they ins uh, instated there an art center and a cultural hub. Mm -hmm. And our role was, again, signage and, and branding of this place. But we also brought color onto the facade in, in a large, big scale, like really painted the whole brick facade of, of that like three or four story um, building. And just by this fairly small intervention, um, it changed the whole dynamic. Color does something to us we can't really understand, but it, it opens up, it feels welcoming, it is engaging, it is attractive, first of all, and it's different, right? And, and through mm -hmm. that intervention with color and patterns, we allowed this, um, this Western common um, artscape hub to become an attraction for the neighborhood and, and allows people to have all kinds of activities, cultural activities there. So with color and with, with these kind of larger interventions, you can change the behavior of the people. It recognizes that place has a value and, um, and, and it is the power of the place, of a public place, um, that is so important for us and for our sanity. And, 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 and that makes it clear. And for us, it was a very rewarding, not financially necessarily, but it was rewarding to see how this can influence a community um, of, of uh, immigrants that mostly live there, but also locals who lived there for a long time have a place where they can come together and again, exchange and have real 
connections to people which they normally wouldn't need. And But this is a place where they feel safe. It has programming. Programming is a very important part of placemaking. And, and, and that's how it works. Similar it was with Regent Park and the Daniels uh, Spectrum. The Daniels Spectrum uh, was supposed to be the heart and soul of that whole redevelopment. And I think um, uh, Diamond Schmidt, uh, who created this building, did a very good job um, in designing the building and the different facilities within there. And we brought in, again, um, colors in an abstracted way um, because Tim Jones from Artscape at the time said, I want to have all the flags of the nations who live in Regent Park on this building. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the flags would be such a simple, such a direct way of, of communicating that. So we, we distilled the flags in vertical stripes. It still has the regality of it, but it is not recognizable as flags immediately. But it creates this 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 awkward or this this um, this look that is different than the rest of it. And with that, plus the programming, the programming was extremely important to bring the people in. Without that, without that outreach, um, you can have the shiniest building; it will still not work. So both have to work together, the design as well as the programming. And that became, at the end, really the heart of the redevelopment at Regent Park. And, and I'm very happy that I was part of this development. Yeah, and it seems like Artscape is particularly adept at creating those not only beautiful, engaging places, but also with great programming. Because uh, I've been to a few of their places that held events that had nothing to do with Artscape, but just happened to happen there. And then all of a sudden, you're in this great place and this great event. So I get what you're saying. So how do you create affection for the places, buildings, or main streets for the people to engage with those those places that we're longing for? Yeah. So there's there's a whole catalog of things you need to consider or should be looked at first of all is really recognizing the value and the power of public spaces um, that's the first thing because in the past architects and planners were more concerned about buildings and streets and, and that kind of thing and then if there was some money left they added a landscape architect to plan some some ground cover around it. So that has all changed now. We recognize the value of public spaces. We recognize the connection to nature again in the city. Um, I was part of the jury for the uh, Reconnect the Waterfront, these underpasses under the Gardener on, Young, on York Street and uh, Simcoe Street. And uh, there were some designs that included nature in their concept. And the public opinion about this was that these were the most um, um, favored uh, designs because they included nature. So you see that longing that being reconnected to nature is a very important part. And I think we get it now. And I think there's a, a stronger emphasis on including nature, including water uh, back into in our environments. Now, it's not so easy in, in our climate. We can't have a, um, a Bosco Verticale like in Milano. Um, but there are, there are possibilities and technology 
now makes it uh, possible to bring water, you know, up in a tower. Yeah, and biophilic design has been all the rage for the last few years. So we're starting to see that because I, I don't know if that's true. It seems to be that even like uh, dried plants or anything that looks like plant, even fake plants apparently affect or affect us positively, uh, in spite of the fact that um, they don't really do anything other than look great. So uh, I think there's something to that for sure that we're probably going to see a lot more of. Um, uh so if you if you were to summarize uh what is necessary for better designed well-functioning public spaces what would it be like if you had a, a few rules that every environmental designer or, or architect should follow yeah so i think one thing is that um, services uh, around the neighborhood should have you know Uh, a distance of maximum 15 minutes to walk to. So keeping these services around neighborhoods so that they are reachable um, and, and you don't have to use a car to get around to them. So short distances is important. Uh, improved signage and communication, that's maybe a little bit self-serving, but it's very important for safety and for clarity and and. And also for the exchange of ideas, because we communicate through our means. Um, I also think being smart with technology, and technology has its bad side, but it also has its good sides. And using the technology in the right way to connect people, to inform people, and uh, to make them aware of certain things is definitely important. Uh, I also think that arts and culture is a central place to uh, placemaking. Um, you know, there's um, so much that art can, can add to a place, not only for temporary interventions. I'm a member of the Waterfront BIA, so we do a lot of temporary interventions to bring people to the waterfront. That's one thing. But you also want to be in a place where there is a mural and you like that mural. And if there is a cafe in front of it, that's your place to hang out. Mm -hmm. So that's very important. And, and the artist has the possibilities also to reveal hidden stories. Um, the genius Loki that is in a place um, that maybe come from the history, from what was done there, how, how, how things were fabricated there, or the nature, they bring it alive. And, and that's a very important part. Then our neighborhoods should be walkable. Um, you know, um, 20 years ago, when I came to Canada and I worked on the Young Street redevelopment, I said in a meeting, um, please, uh, why don't you close down the streets and make these walkable streets? And I was almost put out uh, of the room because that was such a, a strange idea at that time. But nowadays, people are rethinking that. They're making walkable environments, at least temporarily, and it's, it's successful. Yeah, and in Europe, you have pedestrian neighborhoods everywhere. Everywhere. Um, yeah. That are great because you, if you need to access with your car, your truck, you can with special permission, but... It's a very safe environment for pedestrians to kind of meander and not worry. It's like, is there a car coming behind me? And if there's a car, it's up to them to like be very careful and go very slow because they know that 
there's that understanding that pedestrians rule in those in those areas, and I think it, they're very very successful retail uh, uh, neighborhoods. Um, so you mentioned the, the the importance of technology and be mindful of it. What do you think is at stake if we continue to blindly, I would say, rely on technology to fulfill all our needs? Um, well, we use technology often without knowing uh, what it does to us. For example, we use photography, that's your profession, mm -hmm. in most cases without understanding that we see a scene through the camera's eye uh, in a crop picture in a split second. But most people take this for reality, which of mm -hmm. course is not reality. Um, you can analyze it because it's your job to analyze mm -hmm. it, but most people don't do it. So a similar, um, we use a lot of technology um, and we don't know what they do to us like AI and, and mass data collection and the processes that, that are not uh, you know, visible to us, but influence us more and more. And um, from targeted advertisement to, to mass um, manipulation, and, and we have to control that. Um, yeah, and I think we're... Because we were talking about that just before we started the interview, we're at a disadvantage because you have people, um, say, in the news industry who are uh, continuously improving their headlines and articles and, and pieces of content to, to capture our attention. But that, there's nothing qualitative about it. It's purely about clicks and numbers, number of views. And because they're constantly putting out stuff and they can A-B test all the time, they've become really good at knowing what kind of headlines will grab our attention. And I think that's what, why we think that the world is, is ever more divided, when in reality it is not. Because if you talk to people in real life, nothing has changed. We're still as human as ever. But it's the, that life online, on the corporate media, on the social media, where everything is hyper-polarized because there's that need to fulfill this, the shareholders' uh, duty to shareholders and generate profits, at least for, the, for all the um, for-profit media enterprises out there. But what we often fail to recognize is that... Um, the reality is completely different, if not the exact opposite. And I think that's, you know, especially with the pandemic, that's a whole other topic, but we've been stuck at home for two years. So oh, our only connection to the world is through this window, much like a photograph is not a real representation of the world. There's a filter through everything. So um, until we start realizing that we have to take everything we see online with a grain of salt and uh, and have a healthy dose of skepticism towards those things yeah everything is going to feel like it's polarized to death but i don't think it is in real life because it, it brought me to the point where i used to be afraid to kind of have express my opinions or, or be, for fear of like oh people are gonna think i'm crazy or because i hold this view or this or, or, or that other one but the reality is like most people are perfectly reasonable and and the idea that we can still agree to disagree and have a polite conversation in real life is more true than ever it just seems like it's not the case exactly and there's so much positivity with technology we, we should not uh, underestimate that I, I just give you one example with blockchain technology you know 
you can help the almost 2 billion people who are unbanked, who have no access to a bank credit. Um, and now with their cell phone, they can get these micro credits um, uh, through blockchain technology. And that's unbelievable. And that will, you know, spin them out or many of them out of poverty. Like mm -hmm. this is, this is amazing. And that was never like that. So there's a lot of positive things that um, technology brings to us. Mm -hmm. but also, of course, other things. And in, it's just a question of control and, and you know, um, not just taking it for granted. Yeah. And I think blockchain is a good example of technology for good. The primary reason is that it's not owned by anyone, or at least the original blockchain in the form of Bitcoin, because other cryptocurrencies and blockchains have questionable they don't seem to be as secure as Bitcoin is because Bitcoin is truly owned by no one. It, it was created by Satoshi Nakamoto. He disappeared from the face of the earth and gave that's his gift to the world. And so I think that's what makes it so successful because it's, yeah, it's great for the 2 billion of unbanked people, but it's also great for people who say live in regimes that are not friendly to certain ideas and can be oppressed that way to give them the, at least a financial freedom. Yeah. Um, and what I'm going to say might be controversial to some, but uh, I don't, it doesn't really matter. It's also, you know, when you have things like the, um, the truckers protest and the government, and that's just my opinion, frantically trying to uh, seize the funds that are, that have been donated to them. When you do that through the uh, regular avenues, through banking and donation sites, that's very easy to do. And whether you agree with it or not, I don't think that's the point. The point is that now that the money that was given to them in the form of Bitcoins is completely unseizable because there's no middleman. Right. And I think that's part of that uh, uh, loss of power is, is what's driving them nuts. But it also empowers regular citizens to be more free and to use uh, a great technology for, for the greater good, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Um, we were supposed to talk a little bit about the Olympics, so let's do that for a few minutes. Um, you were involved in a unfortunately not successful bid for the 92 Winter Olympics in uh, Germany, uh, which right. which uh, was won by Albertville near my hometown. So I apologize in advance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had not, nothing to do. I was too young at the time. But um, what what was that experience for you, especially as it relates to placemaking and, and how to, to use something like that um, to make better environments? Yeah, so, I mean, you had Jean-Claude Killy as a frontman and uh, he was a star at the time. So it was hard to compete against him. Yeah. But we tried. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, no, and Albaville did a great Olympic uh, Games, uh, Winter Games at the time. Yeah, except for the mascot. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so through, through my involvement with the logo design and then following through with all the brochures and, and doing the displays and, and traveling to different places like Seoul for an IOC uh, conference, I have this a little bit more... Uh, intimate insight in the workings of Olympia. And uh, it's a remarkable um, 
sometimes strange place like it's 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 like surreal um how it all works especially if you are part of the delegations and all the receptions and and president receptions and ambassador receptions and and presence left and right it's it's a surreal place let's say um but um in regards to placemaking so it's a temporary event it's placemaking for two three weeks And it's highly mediated, so that that you need to know. It's a mediated placemaking event, and if everything goes right, it provides meaning as national pride, or at least for that short time. So mm-hmm. national pride, a nation coming together in a feverish moment, uh, as we all have experienced in the final hockey game between the U.S. and Canada in the Olympics in Vancouver. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't even a Canadian at the time, but I never felt so Canadian at that moment. And that is what Olympia can do, and the whole the the the, the design around it. So the games as a showcase of what a nation has to offer for the gaze of the world. It's the mediated games are the foreground, the mirror for often large-scale subsidized infrastructure projects that would otherwise not be possible. Mm-hmm. But the in general positive sentiment towards the games makes it possible, and the design of the games with its shiny, often futuristic buildings and the latest media technology of slow motion pictures and cameras that let you see the athletes from your couch as if you are running or skiing right beside them. Um, that is a special fascination that comes with it. And with all the positivity that I have for the Olympic Games, and, and I was a, a sport uh, fanatic myself, it is still a simulacrum, as um, Baudrillard would say, you know, a temporary illusion, a dream of a heroic ideal that has long been replaced by cool business and marketing interests. Mm-hmm. So um, it has these two sides. There's still the fascination and this this dream of this honesty that sport should incorporate. And, and of course, there's all these dealings that are going behind. And soon these events will be completely replaced by online games and game shows that already fill today's stadiums as big as the bird's nest uh, in Beijing. So you're talking about esports? Esports, exactly. And one of these mega event places of virtual nonstop killing is planned at the exhibition place and will happen in near future. So I think that's where things will unfortunately go. So uh, um, a, a stronger push towards the virtual. When you say nonstop killing, you're referring to games, to video games? Yeah, because yeah. these games that they play at these esports um, mega hackathons, let's say, uh, it's all about you know guys chasing the other and and shooting them down. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it would be interesting to know what what these do to our brains too when you play them twenty four seven. You don't know this about me, but I I didn't work on an, an official Olympic bid, but my master's thesis. Um, before going in a different direction was about uh, designing an Olympic village for the Chicago bid in 2008. Uh, The Chicago bid that never happened. Oh no, sorry. That wasn't selected. I think it was, uh, they bid, but they, they didn't get the Olympics uh, because it was for the 2016. So they lost to Rio. 
if my memory serves me well. But so I, I did a lot of research on how Olympic games work and Olympic villages are insanely complicated. There's a book that's thick of like rules and regulations. and It's crazy. Um, but in my research, I also was able to compile a sort of ranking of the most successful to the least successful Olympics, not only in terms of their cost, although that was a big part of it because Olympics are known to be a huge money pits. Um, but in terms of placemaking, are there particular Olympics that stand out to you that were very successful in creating places? I mean, um, the the paradox is that the Olympics that um, where the Olympic idea lost its innocence um, due to the terrorist attack in Munich mm. was also, um, and the Olympics never were the same afterwards. Uh, it was always also one of the best uh, placemaking uh, events um, um, or, or Olympic events at the time. Um, they really included the whole landscaping um, and the gardens around the Olympic stadiums uh, into one big happening. Uh, it was an unbelievable event and a master orchestra by uh, Otto Eicher. So it really did a lot and it's still used. So that's the other point. It's still used today and it's still used as park um, and, and, and different uh, for different events. Yeah, it's from, from memory, it seems like that's one of the rare Olympics where they didn't build white elephants that sat empty for decades afterwards, which exactly. was the case for pretty much all subsequent Olympics. Montreal, a huge issue. Greece. Atlanta, I'm not sure so much. Uh, Sydney, yeah. um, there's lots of major issues. LA is the only, uh, ironically, is the only Olympics I think that ever turned a profit. Yes, uh, and and really a good profit. And um, you know, uh, Sussman Preser, who did the design, they did really a clever idea of you know using these scaffoldings and hanging in posters and 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 just colors and and shapes. It's lightweight; it could easily be taken down afterwards. But it created this atmosphere and the impression. She did a phenomenal. A job and it was relatively cheap to do. Yeah, so it's a surprise that no one tried to replicate that because they 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 were they did great placemaking during the Olympics because you had all those unifying design elements that you just talked about, and they reused as many venues that already existed and built a few. But um, it was the cheapest Olympics to ever be made, and then nobody ever followed that example. And everybody's going after building those billion dollar stadium so um, it's baffling to me that nobody's trying to do that again yeah and 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 mexico is also a good example in, in 68 mexico didn't have the funds they didn't have the money to build mm -hmm. all these big stadiums so they became inventive so they 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 were really inventive in creating cultural events and environments that didn't cost much mm -hmm. and a great design you know um um they they really were um, so inventive due to the lack of possibilities or the lack of money to create wonderful games at the time. Yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts as far as uh, place good placemaking is concerned and maybe some ideas you want to share with the audience? Well, I would say that um, 
we are at a critical point in time right now with the pandemic. And uh, we cannot keep up with, with the pace of technology, which is exponential, and mm -hmm. with the speed um, that technology also creates. So every new technology changes our behavior. You know, the remote control not only changed that you could switch a channel, it changed the whole setup of TV watching and, and the whole channels in general. Yeah. It's always changing our behavior. And um, so we have to always watch, is, is technology good for the human development and to what extent? And we see now in our cities a new loneliness, um, um, and that's on a world scale, as a direct result of our values and focus on money, on individual individuality, like me, myself, I. Um, and uh, it's already one of the biggest problems in our society, leading to depression, violence, substance abuse, mental mm -hmm. health, and what we see right now, especially with young people. So yeah. it, needs, it needs a substantial shift in our value system. And placemaking is probably one of the most important tasks in our cities to create authenticity and meaning for the people to reconnect with one another rather than being alone together. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the artist, Edward Hopper, you know, you probably know the Nighthawks. Yeah, it's my favorite painting. Exactly. Already in the 50s when he painted that, you know, he already saw what was coming. Mm -hmm. So let this not become a reality for us. You know, rethink and, and try to get real connections and real conversations and, and um, change of these places, public places from the bottom up, including the people who live there. That's my, my hope that we can do that. And I think that's a very great and positive message to end on. Um, I, I really like this conversation. I think it was very interesting. Thank you very much, Udo, for uh, being the first repeat guest. And hopefully we can have you again in the, sometime in the near future to talk about the next interesting thing. Thank you so much, Anna. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.